There are two issues that arise, especially this morning, in relationship to Jesus' death. One of those happens to be the fact that our Muslim friends do not believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. They believe that had he died on the cross, that would have demonstrated weakness. A second issue happens to be who actually is responsible for the death of Christ? Unfortunately, through the centuries, most have blamed the entire Jewish race, though it happened to be uh, that Jesus' first followers came from the Jewish race. Secondarily, some have blamed the Romans. I want to invite your attention to Mark chapter 11. And I want to speak on the subject this morning, provocation and permission. And I want to look at four chapters in Mark for the next four or five hours. (laughs) But I want to examine the text this morning, and then I want to ask and answer the question, why? It'll help us this morning to examine this larger unit of Scripture. I think that it's okay to look at some of the small atomic matters of language and syntax and grammar when it comes to the individual words of the text, but the Bible really was not written first that way. It was written in a way like, uh, much like a novel or a historical novel. It was written to be read in large swaths. So, so both are appropriate, don't misunderstand me, but I really see Mark 11 through 15 as a single unit of Scripture, and it will help us to get uh, 35,000 feet above it, as if in an airplane, and look down upon the text to see the large landscape of what is there. And I think that what we can do this morning is divide the text into two major sections. One is provocation, and the other is permission. From Mark 11:7 to 13:27, we find Jesus provoking the religious leaders in a very holy and sanctified way. Up to this point, Jesus has avoided the religious leaders in Israel. He practiced a strategy of avoidance. When he could avoid them, he did. They would step out at times and challenge him, and he would withdraw himself and move on. But here in the last week of his life, he actually did the exact opposite. He went after them on their own home court during the week of Passover, and he provoked them, is what he did. He, in fact, took over the center of the Passover celebration, and that was the temple. In fact, he walked into the temple and acted as if it belonged to him. And it did. And in the midst of this this throng and this burgeoning crowd... Jesus directly confronted them the last week of his life. Uh, he, in fact, rallied the crowds. And the scripture says in Mark 11, 11, Mark 11, 27, 12, 35, and 14, 49, that Jesus did this every day in the temple. So first he provoked them, and he provoked them with three things. One, he provoked them with his actions from chapter 11, 7 through verse number 19. The triumphal entry, he came riding on a colt into Jerusalem. The Romans would have understood that as the victory ride of a king. The Jews would have understood that as the coming of their king. It has an intense, overwhelming, 
vivid, blatant, and blunt royal messianic overtones. In this way, Jesus is proclaiming he's king over Rome and he's king over Israel, which means he's king over everything. In in verse 9 and 10, they understood what he meant. Those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, the greatest ruler ever in Israel's history and perhaps the world, that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, Jesus is coming as the promised son of David and he's authorized by God to do it because he's doing it in his name. And all of Israel was mixed up in this, or much of it was. Then he condemns Israel. In chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, in verse 14, Jesus cursed a fig tree. Israel's symbol was that of a fig tree. It was not bearing fruit. And so he said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. That's not just a word for the fruit tree. That is the God of Israel speaking to Israel. And then he cleansed the temple. Verses 15 through 19, he came in and drove out money changers who were in the court of the Gentiles. They made it somewhat convenient for Jews traveling to Passover to find sacrifices, so they wouldn't have to bring their own. The problem is they set up their business in the temple, in in the court, the only place where the Gentiles were allowed. And ancient historians say that they were actually selling to worshipers defective sacrifices, not the best. And they were selling them for scandalous prices. Nauseating sacrifices for scandalous prices and hindering the Gentiles from coming to God. And so Jesus goes in and tears up everything. He flips over the tables. He runs out the livestock and he's got a whip in his hand and that's not just for show. In fact, John says in John 2 that he made the whip himself. Now Jesus didn't do that very often. There are some misguided personalities that like stories like that, and they do that every 10 minutes. Well, Jesus did it once, maybe twice in three years. But this is what he does. And he says in verse 15 to 17 that he went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, turned over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He would not allow anyone to carry wares or goods into the temple. So he stood at the entrance and pushed people away and threw down on the goods that were in their hands that they were trying to sell. And then he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. He called them out and accused them of thievery in the temple. So he provoked them with his actions. This would become an issue a little bit later, in fact. He provoked them also, secondly, with his answers from verse 20 to chapter 12, verse 27. There there are answers about the authority of the temple. They came to him and asked him the question, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus said, well, John, I want to ask you a question. Was John the Baptist from heaven or men? And they thought among themselves, well, we say from heaven, he's going to reply, well, uh, then why didn't you follow him? If we say from men, we'll create a riot in the crowd because John the Baptist is wildly popular. So in verse 33 of Mark chapter 11, Jesus uh, hears from them and they say, well, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He won't give them an answer. 
And then he goes on and uh, answers their question about taxes. They say, are we to pay taxes to Caesar? It annoyed them terribly to do so because those taxes were used for unrighteous purposes. They were used for Rome. And Jesus said, give me a coin. Whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And so he says in verse 17 of Mark 12, will render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and render to God that which belongs to God. In other words, there are some things God wants you to give the government and some things He wants you to reserve precisely for Himself and government is not to mix with it. And I sure do wish some people today would learn that, don't you? Then he answers questions about the eternity of the body. The Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection and don't believe the Bible after the book of um, Deuteronomy, they say there's no resurrection, but they came to Jesus and said, well, there's a woman who had one husband and he died, and he left no heir, so she married another, a brother, and he left no heir and died, and so she ended up marrying seven brothers in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, uh, whose wife shall she be? And Jesus answered to that and said, in the resurrection... Uh, they're, they're not like us. We're not married or given in marriage. And, but what Jesus says is that he prefaces and finishes that answer with a very serious attack at the intelligence of the Sadducees. Look with me in verse um, number 24 and 27 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 24 and 27. Are you, well, in verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scripture nor the power of God. In other words, Jesus said to them, when it comes to biblical knowledge, you are thorough ignoramuses. Verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. And how it breaks my heart that some three-year-old Awana kids know the Bible better than some adults in Baptist churches. It is a sin not to know the Word of God. And Jesus lifts it up there. And in case they missed it, He reiterated it in verse number 27. And then He uh, answers questions about the priority of the commandments. The Jews, or the Pharisees especially, had about 600 commandments that they observed. And they were very intense about some very small things that were not very weighty. They had some strange applications of the Sabbath laws. For instance, you could not move a chair on the Sabbath because if you did, you might move the dirt and that would constitute plowing. And you could not travel so far beyond your home. And so they would place a toothbrush that far from home because once they placed a toothbrush there, that constituted a second home. They could walk there and then they could walk on. Well, out of that context, somebody comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And you know what he answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what he did is that he took their favorite interpretations and their human inventions and their rationalism, and he sliced it to pieces with simple Scripture. In other words, he answered them just like he did the devil in Mark 1, Matthew 4, in Luke chapter 3, or Luke chapter 4, excuse me. And so Jesus provoked them with actions and answers, then he provoked them with teaching. Jesus provoked them with teaching from chapter 12 to the end of chapter 13. Uh, a teaching about his death. He told a parable in chapter 12 about a vineyard that 
a owner left to some workers. And he went off to a far land, and at harvest time, he sent a servant to collect a portion of the harvest. But they beat that one. And he sent another. They beat him. Finally, he sent his son, and they beat and they killed him. This is the story Jesus is telling. And so Jesus asked them a question about this um, parable in verse 9 of chapter 12. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And verse number 12, they got it. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken a parable against them. Now again, he's in the temple in front of these large crowds, and he's embarrassing and confronting these religious leaders. So this is a teaching about his death. Then a teaching about his deity. He was not half man and half God, not all man and no God, not all God and no man. Jesus was God-man, the only 200% person ever to live. And so he asked them a question and teaches about his deity. He says in chapter 12, verse 35 through 37, um, how do you explain this? David said that the Messiah would be his son by inspiration of the Spirit. But David calls him Lord. So how is it that he calls his son Lord? Well, have you ever thought of that? How could King David ever call his son the Lord? You would think David would be above his son and simply call him son. But David called his son Lord. Well, how does the Lord become David's son unless God becomes human flesh? And that's what Jesus is pointing to. This is a direct reference to the virgin birth of the Son of God, is what he does here. And then he teaches something about the scribes in verse 38 to 40. And reading this is like listening to someone rip a board off a wall with rusty nails. Verse 38, he said to them in his teaching, and again, in the temple before the crowds, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, and they love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feast, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers, these will receive a greater condemnation. He takes them on publicly and undermines their authority before the crowd. He teaches also about giving in verse 41 through 44. They were proud of their large gifts, and Jesus points to a widow who gave out of her poverty, and it hurt her to give, and he said she has given more than all because she did not give out of her wealth, but out of her poverty. Then in chapter 13, he teaches about the temple. Now, the Jews had a very intense, false sense of security because they owned the temple. It was theirs. God had promised His presence and His dwelling there, so there's no way they could ever be at risk, but God never said that. In fact, He had said the exact opposite. You don't have greater privilege because you have the temple. You've got greater responsibility and accountability. And so the disciples in chapter 13, verse 1, are enamored with the temple. And Jesus replies in verse 2 of chapter 13, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon the other that shall not be thrown down. And then he talks about his his apocalyptic coming, which is prefigured in A.D. 70 by the coming of Titan when he destroyed Rome. That's what he does here. Now you have to understand again, chapter 12, verse 35. 
Look what it says there. All of this provocation takes place in chapter 12, verse 30, uh, in, in this text, in front of the large Passover crowd. And verse 35 says, Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple. This is not a private encounter. This is not a private confrontation. It is public, out in the open. And Jesus undermines them during the high point of their year. He provokes them. But there's a second section to this whole text, and that is permission. From chapter 14 through chapter 15. Jesus gives permission to three. One, He gives permission to Judas. After this time, He goes up into the upper room where the disciples have prepared the Passover. And in the midst of the Passover, He transitions into the Lord's Supper. And He takes the elements of the Lord's Supper and He makes them the elements of the Lord's Supper. He takes the elements of the Passover and makes them the elements of the Lord's Supper. And he says, whatever the Passover pointed to, it is pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of this Passover. And then he drops a rhetorical bomb in the midst of the Passover celebration, which transitions to the Lord's Supper. In verse 18 of chapter 14, he says there, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me, will betray me. It throws the disciples into chaos. Most of them are humble. And they begin asking in verse 19, is it me? And Jesus indicates, now watch this. In verse 20, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. During a Passover celebration, the head of the table would offer reconciliation to a family member or a friend where a relationship was broken. He would do that by taking a mixture of the bread and herbs and dip them into a bowl of sop and hand it to the person with whom he wanted to reconcile. And Jesus says here, the one I do that with is the one who will betray me. Two remarkable things here. Jesus, during the Passover, reached out to Judas as if to say, you don't have to do this. Judas Iscariot, you do not have to be known as my betrayer. At the last moment, Jesus is extending mercy and grace and reconciliation to Judas, and he's doing it with you today. At the end of this message, he will. We will offer you the opportunity to get right with God on the basis of the blood and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's reaching through this voice and reaching through this worship and reaching through the faith here. He wants you to come to Him. You do not have to leave here unconverted like a Judas Iscariot. You can come to Jesus and become a child of God. He's reaching. But the second remarkable thing here is this. And let me put it in form of a question. Did Jesus know who would betray Him? Did Jesus know the identity of his betrayer? Well, of course he did. Now let me ask you. You're in a room that most likely has only one entrance. You know Peter is carrying a sword. Later on, he'll go after a neck of a servant and get an ear. He wasn't too good with the sword. But you've got these strong men, and they're in an upper room. One entry, Jesus knows the identity of his betrayer. What would have happened had Jesus revealed the identity of his betrayer? If Jesus tells Peter, Peter, 
and tells John and Andrew, my betrayer is Judas Iscariot, and Judas is sitting right there. Tell me, just how much longer does Judas live? How much longer does he maintain his freedom? But does Jesus reveal the identity of his betrayer? No. He's very cryptic. And later, the devil will enter into Judas because he resists the call of Jesus Christ to himself. And that can happen to a person. He resists that call. The devil enters him and Jesus looks at him and says, what you've got to do, go do quickly. And he leaves and betrays Jesus Christ. And lets his enemies know of his prayer time in the garden where he is later arrested. So Jesus lets Judas go, betray him in safety and in cover. But not after. He offers him one last opportunity to repent and get right with him. He gives permission to Judas. Then he gives permission to the Jews. He granted permission to the Jews. They come in the garden and they arrest him. And from that point on, there are multiplied illegalities that take place in the trials and interrogation of Jesus Christ. One is, he is arrested at night. They were not to do that. They were to arrest during the day. They do not announce to him the charges against him. They don't do that at all. They uh, take him first to Annas' home, the father of the high priest, They were to take him public, not to a private residence. They do this at night. They do not offer him a defense counsel. They should have done that. They do not give 24-hour notice of the trial. Instead, they begin it immediately. It is not held in a public setting. There's no public meeting in the marketplace where this kind of trial was to be held. Instead, it's held in Annas' and Caiaphas' home. They end up uh, organizing false witnesses whose stories do not corroborate and do not agree. They do not have two witnesses who do agree, and you cannot try a case like this without the presence of two or three eyewitnesses. They don't bother to find those. Then they render an immediate verdict. The Jews were supposed to wait on these kinds of cases two days and two nights so they could think through and ponder and give opportunity to release the one that is accused or to find other evidence maintaining his innocence. Then they were to vote when they voted, They were to vote, this jury of 70 was to vote one at a time. But instead they rush and they do it immediately. However, they were supposed to vote with the youngest first, so the youngest would not be intimidated by the vote of the oldest. They don't do that. They rush to judgment. They physically abuse Jesus. They were not to physically abuse the prisoner there any more than we are today. And they did it in the courtroom. Then, Everything reaches a peak in chapter 14 and verse 61. And I want you to read this carefully with me. The high priest interjects himself into the proceedings of the court. He was not to do that. He was to judge and manage the court in in an unbiased manner. But in chapter 14 and verse number 61, look what happens here. Now you see, let me set this up. There are 70 Sanhedrin that form the jury. Very few of them like Jesus, but most of them love the law. I can see them shifting in their seat and thinking, wait, this is happening at night. I don't care too much about Jesus, but I sure do like procedure. And these witnesses are a joke. And they're getting nervous. 
The high priest senses he's about to lose control of the case. He's about to lose the opportunity to crucify the Son of God. And so in verse 61, here's what he does. The high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Well, Jesus knows it's about to spin out of control as well. They're about to lose their opportunity to crucify him. And so, here's how Jesus replies. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. They got it. One of the few times Jesus speaks, He sees the trial spinning out of control. They are losing their opportunity to crucify Him. And Jesus gives them incriminating evidence. It was entirely true to Him, to the Father. But to them, look in verse number 63. The high priest tore his clothes, which you did in the presence of blasphemy, and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to death, to deserving of death. So the trial is about to spin out of control. The Sanhedrin is growing nervous. The high priest senses it. Jesus senses it. So he interrogates him himself. And Jesus gives him the only evidence that he thinks he needs to condemn him to death. But there's a problem. Jews cannot crucify or kill on their own. They need Pilate. Pilate's world is spinning somewhat out of control. He's not in favor. He's not in the favor of the Caesar for whom he works directly. The Caesar has sent a monitor to Jerusalem to watch Pilate, and they're investigating him. Usually Pilate was profoundly ruthless, very certain. He might be wrong, but he's never in doubt. But now he is under the watch, watchful eye of the Caesar. He is near to losing his position, so he's rather nervous and insecure, and the Jews catch him at the right time, the Jewish religious leaders, that is. And so they go to Pilate, and they begin to accuse him, and they say he is claimed to be the Christ, in other words, the son of David, the rival Pilate to your throne. They weren't too interested in the charge of blasphemy at this point. They were interested in the political ramifications of his declaration that he is the Messiah, the King of Israel, a rival to Pilate's throne, and in their understanding, a rival actually to Caesar's throne. Well, Pilate examines him. Pilate examines him very carefully. Pilate is trained in Roman jurisprudence. Pilate knows how to interrogate witnesses. Pilate knows the rules of evidence. And in chapter 15, verse 14, they cry out to him, crucify him, but he asks the question in chapter 15, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? After interrogating him, after bringing Herod in to interrogate him, Pilate still finds no cause for condemnation. In fact, Luke and John record that on five occasions, Pilate looked at the crowd and looked at the religious leaders and said to them, quote, I find no fault in him, which is equivalent to our American statement by a jury, not guilty. At that moment, Jesus could have walked off after the first one. But Pilate repeated it at least five times, perhaps more, and Jesus could have walked off. But instead, all through the process, Jesus is silent. 
Jesus does not let Pilate know of the abuses from the night before. Jesus does not call Pilate's, uh, Pilate to account because of his violation of Roman law. Jesus instead is silent and he lets the whole thing go. Why? Let me make it abundantly clear to you. At the cross, Jesus is not a victim, but a victor. Contrary to my Muslim friends and their theological beliefs, the cross was not a defeat for Christ. It was a win. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ did not show weakness. Jesus showed strength. The cross is power. The cross is strength. And Jesus got to the cross because of what Acts 4.28 says. By the foreordained purpose of God. Or John chapter 10 verse 18 when he talks about his life. No one takes it from me. I give it of my own initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason Jesus Christ went to the cross is that Jesus Christ arranged to get himself to the cross. If Jesus did not want to go to the cross, He would not have had to. Instead, Jesus got to the cross because He arranged His own crucifixion. Why is it that He did that? One reason. To exemplify His demands. Teddy Roosevelt said, There's never been a man yet who led a life of ease whose name is worth remembering. Friend, we remember the name of Jesus because Jesus had no easy life. He could have organized it that way, but He did not. He called upon His followers, If anyone come after me, what? Let him deny himself, help me, take up his cross and follow me. Whatever Jesus called for from you and from me and from His followers, whatever He called for from those who would follow Him, He first demonstrated Himself. In fact, he surpassed his own demands. He said, love your enemies. He loved those who murdered him. He said, go the second mile, and he went to Calvary. Jesus not only met the demands that he called forth from, uh, from us, but Jesus also surpassed them. Jesus here at the cross illustrates his demands. In other words, the real Christian life is a life marked by the cross. Every Christian should be able to look back on his or her life, and see life shaped in the form of a cross. In other words, to put it like one country preacher put it, ain't nothing easy. In fact, I've got to come to the point where I say to you, if everyone likes you, and no one disagrees with you, your walk with Christ, it's probably because you're not living the Christian life. If you're following Jesus, there'll be some people that love and adore you, but there will be people who will absolutely despise you because of your walk with Jesus. You know what that means? That means to be a Christian means you have the right friends, but you also have the right enemies. Now, that's not licensed to go stir up trouble. I know there are people out there with the personality of a chainsaw who like statements like that. I'm not talking about that. 
What that does mean is that simple obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit makes a difference in your life that some will appreciate and some will not. But I've got to say to you, if you are obsessed with people liking you to the point where you're embarrassed of Jesus and will not mention Him in public and will collapse and compromise your standards to get along with people, if that's how obsessed you are with being liked, you can't follow Jesus. You've got to make a choice. And I need to warn you beforehand. If you follow Christ, it will upset some people. It will bother some. That's the price you're going to pay. But Jesus looks you square in the eye and says, if you come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Not everyone like Jesus. And he said, a servant is not greater than his master. So Jesus first exemplifies his demands. And that's what Jesus demands of you today. At the end of the sermon, we're going to sing a song. And we're going to help you meet the demand of Christ. We want to ask you to step out from where you are in a moment and meet one of our staff members in front in order to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But there's a second reason. Not only his example, he exemplified his demands, but second, Jesus arranged his death to exchange places. To exchange places. In Mark 14.24, he said to the disciples, in the Lord's Supper, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Is shed in the place of many. Jesus took our place at Calvary's cross. Now there's a remarkable demonstration of that here in Mark chapter 15. It was the custom during Passover for the Roman governor to offer a Jew, freedom, out of prison. He would meet the crowd, and he would say, who do you want me to release for you? Well, Pilate was hoping they would say Jesus. But the religious leaders stirred and provoked the crowd to where they called for an insurrectionist, which is a nice way of saying a Jewish terrorist, who was attacking Rome, most likely, and killing Roman soldiers. They had captured him, And they had intended, apparently that day, to crucify this Jewish terrorist in the middle cross with two others on the side. Now follow me carefully. Pilate is standing in his place. The prison where this Jewish terrorist, Barabbas, is held is far enough away to where he cannot hear Pilate, but he's close enough to hear a crowd. He's within a half mile or closer. And so Pilate comes to the crowd and says, who would you like for me to release for you? And they shout, Barabbas! Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! And Pilate says, well, what about Jesus? What do I do with him? And they say, what? Crucify, crucify him. Now, an interesting known, little known fact. Some of the most ancient manuscripts we have of Matthew, especially, 
mention Barabbas. Bar, son, Abbas is Abba, father or rabbi. That's his last name. His first name apparently has been dropped so as to avoid confusion. This Jewish terrorist in prison is the son of a rabbi and the most ancient manuscripts we have give him and ascribe to him the first name Yeshua, which we call Jesus. This young man's name is Jesus, son of a rabbi. He's in prison awaiting crucifixion on that middle cross. And so again, let's repeat. Jesus is here. The crowd is there. Pilate is standing. Who do you want me to release for you? Help me. Barabbas. Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Well, what do I do with Jesus? Crucify. Crucify him. Ladies and gentlemen, Barabbas is far enough away to where he does not hear Pilate, but he hears the crowd. So all Barabbas hears is this. Barabbas! Barabbas! Crucify him! Crucify him! A guard walks down to the prison. As Jesus is marching up to Golgotha and Calvary's hill, Barabbas, expecting to be crucified that day, hears the prison doors open, and a Roman soldier gruffly says, what? You're free. Go on. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a Barabbas in every one of us. That is a marvelous illustration of what took place at Calvary's cross. Jesus was executed with a death sentence of the cross in our place. God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How could anyone here today say no to a life of repenting and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Your friend has been wounded for you, and it's time to rush to him. So Jesus exchanged places. But there is a final thing that Jesus did. Jesus arranged his death to encourage sinners. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. When I was 15 years old, I got really sick one spring day. And I had nausea, it felt like, from my shoulders down to my knees. And it only got worse. And I remember laying on the couch. I'd just gotten in from running. And my parents thought that maybe I was a bit exhausted. But the pain grew, and it was generalized. It was not sharp. It was generalized all over. And they felt my pulse, and they weren't very comforted by that. They looked into my eyes. They weren't comforted with that. They waited a little bit to see if I would improve, and um, I didn't. Uh, so the next events that happened, I don't know. I don't recall. I think what happened is that I slept through the night at home. And the next morning, my father took me to the base hospital. And I arrived there, and my baseball coach was on duty. He was the surgeon in the emergency room that day. I ran through some tests real quick, 
And what I'm told is my system was filled with poison. And what had happened is that my appendix had grown gangrene. It had not ruptured, but it had grown gangrene. And so they rushed me into surgery, and they didn't put me to sleep. I was awake during the surgery. But they blocked me from the waist down. But I passed out after a while. But I have to tell you, whenever I got in there and I saw my baseball coach, who cared for me deeply, and when I saw the scalpel, which I didn't see it long, I had never been so happy to see a doctor in all my life. Once they found out what the problem was, and once they decided on a treatment, surgery, I was incredibly relieved. You know, the only person that appreciates a doctor is the one who's convinced he or she needs one. If you are so good and if you are so virtuous, would you please explain to me why Jesus died for you? I don't mean to embarrass you or confront you or or to be ugly to you. But if you're good and, you do, and, and, and if you're virtuous and if you deserve to get into God's favor by your own performance, then would you explain to me why Jesus died? Friends, Jesus did not die because we're good. Jesus died because we aren't. And he took our place at the cross. And what he's doing is he's saying, I'm in the emergency room. Your system is poisoned with sin and with guilt and condemnation that you've brought on upon yourself. And I am calling you to my surgical table where I will give you a new heart and a new life. And that is my design and that is my will. That's what Jesus Christ does. How in the world can anyone ever then look at Jesus Christ and repudiate and turn Him away in arrogance and in pride? You can't do that today, can you? J. Wilbur Chapman wrote one of my favorite hymns. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, I do now receive Him. More than all in Him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am His and He is mine. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. He calls you. Sick as you are. As many offenses as you've launched to heaven. Be assured there is a Savior who arranged His death in order to cancel your sins. If you'll simply repent and believe the gospel. Say yes to Him. Say yes to your friend. Say yes to your physician. Say yes to the one who took your place. Say yes to the fact you have a need. You've got a great need for Christ and the fact that He came is a clear indication of that. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, There is no just man who does good and does not sin. Say yes that salvation is offered. The Samaritans looked at Jesus in John 4.42 and said, We are convinced He is the Savior of the world. Say yes to His way of salvation. The Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. Repudiate your arrogance. Repudiate anything keeping you from Jesus Christ and trusting Him. And then turn all of your hope and faith 
to Jesus Christ and He will receive you today. Father, we pray that friends would do that today and open up their hearts and souls to Christ and say yes to Him. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for the time to proclaim it. Lord, You are good and You are the friend of sinners and I pray that friends would rush to You today and say yes. Say yes to Him. Give them the courage to follow Jesus all the way and bow everything before Him and trust Him enough to give them their guilt. Thank You for the sufficiency of the cross and the resurrection. Father, others need to make other decisions today by joining with Beach Haven or surrendering to ministry or missionary service, doing some serious business with you. We pray they would today. As you keep talking to God, let me explain to you what we're going to do. This is the most important time during our worship service. It's time to say yes to Him. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are. Folks will move aside. And we'll have staff here in the front that will help you. Tell them your spiritual need as best you can. And they will give you guidance to your friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. There's nothing too big that you've done that He will not cancel it. His blood and cross are enough and have never lost their power. I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Would you quickly and quietly stand with me right now, please? Let me finish my prayer and you can come. Father, Would you do a neat work in hearts and lives today and gather up all the faith and loyalty and love for Jesus that he deserves now? In his name we pray, amen.